Hello, welcome to Property Potential Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Zalkin. Today I'm with Scott Snodgrass from Meristem Communities. Scott, welcome to the podcast. It's a, a real pleasure to have you on today. I've been following your work for quite some time and I'm super impressed. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about your background? You have a, a very interesting background story. Uh, let's hear a little bit about it. Sure. Well, thank you for having me on today. I'm excited to be here. I've been checking in on a few uh, of the episodes. Man, you've been pumping a lot of episodes out lately. Uh, it's been impressive. Uh, and definitely see some of our friends in the development world um, that you've interviewed already. So I've got a few more of those already in the queue that I need to get through here in the next week or two. So thanks for helping everybody tell their stories a little bit and sharing this information. Um, so uh, I am, you know, one of those weird developer by way of uh, folks. And I, I think it's actually maybe not that weird. Um, in our market, in the Gulf Coast of Texas, it's very common for civil engineers to become developers because civil engineering is really a lot of the critical work that's done for a development here. We have easier pathways through entitlement, less legal um, controls we have to deal with, but drainage is a huge issue here. And so you see a lot of civil engineers and H&H &H engineers that become developers ultimately because it's such an important place. But, um, you know, my business partner and I, we both come to development by way of agriculture, um, which there are some other folks that that's happened for across the country as well. Um, you know, I know there's some folks who've been, you know, in the agriculture world that have become developers. There's lots of farmers who end up with land that becomes a part of the the edge of the city. And then, you know, they want to become developers themselves. Uh, our story is a little bit different in that um, we had a background in small farms, uh, urban farms, um, very community oriented farms where we're, we're growing vegetables, maybe some small livestock. Um, and then people were, you know, interacting with those farms. That was a part of what those farms did. And we had run farms like that off and on, you know, I had run some myself. And then after Clayton and I became partners, we had a few together here and there for different organizations. And, you know, at one point we realized there was becoming a lot of demand for that. And we had a friend who was a landscape architect who said, Hey, I've got this project. We need some consulting. They're going to put a farm in a neighborhood. And so we said, okay, we'll come and consult. And at first it was just what kind of fruit trees should they plant here and there and that sort of thing. And then one day we said, well, who are you intending to hire for your actual farmer to like grow the vegetables and talk to the residents in the neighborhood? And they said, well, you know, here's the job description that we had found. And we were just going to talk to the guy who'd been row cropping corn here for the past 15 years. And uh, we cautioned them, hey, um, typically your tractor farmers, uh, they like being by themselves in a tractor all day. That's why they do that work. Uh, and it's important work. It's an important part of our food system. Um, but typically they like to be by themselves. They like to be really close with their family. They like to have a small group of close friends. Um, they're not necessarily the outgoing type that are really going to have the energy to engage with other people a bunch. And so we said, you know, might we suggest that we go, you know, we, we suggest to you a different route. Um, and that route was us starting a company called Agmenity. And Agmenity provides agricultural amenity services for master plan community developers, hospitals, and school districts. Um, and we work kind of across the country um, in a consulting basis. And, and then what we do that's a little bit different than most of the other folks in the space is we actually operate farms too. 
So, um, you know, there are other folks that will go in and, and design a farm for you and help you set up your farm, maybe even find a farmer. Um, and those have been successful. You know, we've seen some projects that have had that sort of arrangement that has worked out. Um, but there's also been a lot of turnover in those positions. And we felt like professionalizing it as a service really allowed us to provide the developers the consistency that they need. Um, and so we operate farms in Texas and Florida, uh, and we have um, our let's see, our seventh farm coming on in northern Alabama, you know, probably next year or the year after, um, and are really expanding that operational footprint throughout the southeast right now. So then uh, getting back to your original question of how we got into um, being developers ourselves, we had also bought a piece of property and had a large scale vegetable farm on it. Uh, so 235 acres, we were doing 50 acres in vegetables and thinking we would grow ultimately up to that 235 acres, we pretty quickly learned that was a ridiculous amount of vegetables and that we would probably never get there. And we also realized that if we weren't going to get there, we couldn't afford to pay for the property. And so what were we going to do? So we started looking at ways to maybe um, bring in a partner and offload a piece of land to someone who was going to develop something that would be really complementary to the farm. So we had conversations with a couple of breweries who wanted to do open air fermentation and they wanted the fungi that would be blowing around in the wind at the farm for that purpose, much like Jester King. Uh, in Central Texas. Um, and so uh, we had a few talks with folks like that. We talked with some of the players from the Houston Texans who were trying to build an Olympic weightlifting facility on our side of town. Um, Light Industrial, of course, is really popular in our area. We're on the Grand Parkway, which is a large highway outside of Houston. And so we had all those conversations. And then COVID hit and all development stopped for two months. And then after that two months, the only thing that really came back was single family housing. And we had to do something. And so we said, okay, I guess we're going to develop a neighborhood and do it ourselves. Um, we had been in development meetings for years with other developers, seeing how the whole process worked in Texas and a little bit in Florida. And so we felt like we had learned just enough to be dangerous. Uh, and then we had just, we had gotten connected well enough at the national level through the Urban Land Institute in order to feel the safety of, if we go hire some really, really top-notch consultants, then we'll know that we have the safety and their guidance to not make the huge mistakes. Um, and so uh, Indigo was born that way. And the farm is coming back as a part of Indigo um, as well. And so our company, Agmenity, will manage the farm for the development that we're developing as well. So um, if we could just, you, you gave a lot. Let's unpack it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you didn't, I think, use the term agrihood yet, but what is an agrihood? How would you describe it just in layman's terms to somebody that has heard it for the first time? Sure. And I think that right now there's there's probably some disagreements in the industry over what that term means. It's one that's been discussed a lot. Um, we contributed to a white paper um, through ULI in 2018, I think, um, called Cultivating the Field. Um, and it was kind of bringing together all the agrihood developers and operators across the country at that time when there were far fewer and just saying what were best practices. Um, ULI did a good job of convening everyone for that. And one of the big discussions was nobody really loves this term agrihood just from a, a sound of it, from a connotation. Um, you know, nobody loved it, but it seemed to be what was sticking and what the media was using and it was the language people were using. So, you know, we've decided at Agmenity to speak really particularly about agricultural amenities. So it's an amenity for the neighborhood with an agricultural theme or purpose. Um, and so we have agricultural amenities in communities I would not call an agrihood. 
because for me to be an agrihood, it is the it's the theme of your entire community. It's the character of your community. It really is like why people buy in your community is for the agrihood living. Uh, and so we have some farms where like Harvest Green in the southwest suburbs of Houston absolutely would call an agrihood. I think it's one of the more robust agrihoods in the country as far as interaction points for residents how much produce we actually grow on the farm, like it's a significant amount. Um, and then how it interacts with the community outside of the residents of the neighborhood as well. Um, and then we also have another farm in a community called Jordan Ranch, which is out on West, uh, I-10 West, leaving Houston. And Jordan Ranch's theme is nostalgic Americana. So it's checkered tablecloth picnics, radio flyer wagons, fireworks. And so a small farm fits into that but maybe it's a little bit more of like that your grandparents backyard garden it was a quarter acre or something uh and so i would not call jordan ranch an agrihood even though it has a, an acre and a half agricultural amenity where we're absolutely growing thousands of pounds of food and have full-time farmers working there every day um but i don't think that it's uh it's quite an agrihood so the definition for agrihood is there's a substantial amount of food grown people are able to learn about food systems and how they work Typically, you'll have some other connections, either to a restaurant that's doing farm to table. Maybe there's honey. Um, maybe there's people making pickles or preserves. And you have those those value added goods um, happening with partners in the area. But that it really is the the character and the culture of the community, uh, and it's in like most of the marketing includes those materials. So the community revolves around the farmer or farms and the, the food production, right? What have you found as the, uh, you know, the typical tenant or not tenant, but resident that is attracted to an agrihood? What sort of differentiates them with other residents looking for a community? Yeah, I mean, we've been lucky to be able to see some of the data on the back end about who's moving into these communities. And it's given us some really interesting um, data points. One of them is that it tends to skew younger than most. Um, if you're talking suburban master plan community agrihood, then I would right. say that the buyers tend to skew younger, um, significantly like five years younger than other master plan communities. And that's not to say that everyone's younger, but on, on average they are. Um, also pulling a lot more people from center city. Um, there, there were a lot of people from inside 610 in Houston that moved to Harvest Green and 610 is the inner loop, you know, uh, it's the, it's where the hardcore urbanites live in Houston. And so we, we heard the stories anecdotally from people who said, oh, we were those people who were like, we're going to have kids and we're not moving to the suburbs. We're raising our kids in the city. Uh, and then they said, well, but then we saw this agrihood thing and we were like, well, if we were going to move to the suburbs where we could afford more of a house, maybe the school districts are a little stronger, you know, um, we can have a little bit more space if we want to. Um, we would only do it for this reason. And so I think the agrihood gave some people a reason to give themselves permission to leave the city center um, to go out there. So I think those are the two big ones. Um, we also had a lot more um, in all of our communities. We had more work from home folks prior to COVID than most other communities did as well. So I think it was people who felt like I'm choosing to live somewhere strictly for my like leisure and what I'm doing for my own self, uh, less so doing it for where I'm working. Makes total sense. Mm -hmm. uh, the Indigo Commons, your, your town center, is very unique from other town centers. I'd love to hear about how that was envisioned, 
how it's different from other traditional town centers um, and, and what, and you know, what, what is your vision for that? It's um, it's been a struggle. I think it's one of the more unique things we're trying to solve. <clears throat> we're going to, it's going to be an experiment. We're going to see how it goes. Um, but really what we're trying to do is revert back to an older pattern of development. And so um, we actually hired Monty Anderson, who you've had on the show. Yes. Um, and Monty came and really educated us on incrementalism and how the 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 good development patterns that we have in this country, the places people really want to go, those places were developed that way over time by thousands of different people. And that's how we got to that rich tapestry that really served a wide range of people. And it's hard to do that when you're just one developer developing an enormous greenfield site. Um, and so you can, I think you can read, people can read the the Disneyfication, let's call it, of the town center. Um, people are starting to recognize like, okay, that's one building, but they just changed the facade every 20 feet to make it look like different buildings. And you go in one door and it's actually on the inside, it's open the whole way down. And you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think people are starting to recognize that. So we said, okay, well, that giant building is still a landlord investor relationship with tenants. Um, and we feel like those can be a little extractive. So we said, how do we go in and flip the script? And I think the most unique thing we're doing is our incremental retail buildings, um, which are, um, they'll run 1,400 to 5,000 square feet, um, but the bottom floor can't be any more than 800 square feet. So these are two and three story buildings. Um, and the bottom floor, you know, we, we basically wanted these buildings to be the vertical pattern you would have seen in an old downtown, especially in an old Texas downtown, but across the country. Um, where you would have built one building and then sold the next lot and someone would have built a building on that one and sold the next lot and the buildings don't all look the same. They're all, in fact, they're all a little bit different. They're trying to differentiate from each other a little bit. Um, and those rich storefronts with lots of glass, uh, with retail businesses so people can see in and see what's for sale. And it's an interesting place that you want to be and you want to be on foot and not in a car. Uh, and so we, we try to develop that. And then at the same time, give those business owners a way to to benefit on the equity side, much like you would with a home, but to be able to buy it with a longer term lease to bring that monthly payment down and to bring security in your purchase. Um, and then also give you opportunities maybe to live upstairs in the unit, or maybe you have apartments that you lease out, make them very flexible. You know, the real, the primary requirement we have on those buildings is the bottom floor has to be active retail. Right. You could have more retail above, you can have office above, you could live above, you could lease out apartments above, whatever else you want to do. Um, but you've really got to be active retail on the bottom floor. So I think that's kind of the biggest shift that we've taken in trying to follow those old patterns is even though we're one developer developing a big site, trying to give more people influence in the way that things are designed and built. How many overall storefronts are you planning for that town center? So the incremental retail buildings, there's 22. Okay. And then we have another uh, I mean, we have 70,000 square feet total of commercial space. So there are other buildings that are for lease in a more traditional arrangement. Um, some of those we're going to build. Some we have partners who will build them. There's a daycare center. You know, there's some of your daily need stuff. Th that's the other thing I'd say about the town centers is too often these days, they've all become luxury brands or like people try to go really far with the craft business stuff, which I love and speaks to my heart. Like I want to have a butcher in my neighborhood that knows a cow and I can go down and talk to him about, oh, I was cooking that cut of meat and it didn't work the way I wanted to, you know, how do I fix this problem? But you can't only do that stuff. 
right? We still need a dentist that's just right. a dentist <laughs> and just cleaning people's <laughs> teeth and fixing problems. And we still need, you know, the bodega um, that's just selling some very basic staple goods, but convenient. So we're trying to balance that as well, where it's like real commercial uses that everybody needs often with some really cool craft business stuff. It's an art to put something like that together. And it oh, yeah. takes time. Uh, it's a great approach that you've come up with. Um, you know, with development, you're often managing or working with so many different stakeholders, whether it's, you know, local government or home builders or what have you. Uh, how do you manage all those relationships? What's your what's your mindset or what's your philosophy? It's difficult. Uh, there's there, like you said, there's there's definitely decision fatigue um, with all of the decision points that you have. I think our real success in that is is approach everything as a relationship. <clears throat> so nothing is nothing is just a transaction. Um, you know, we we intend to have a relationship with you that goes beyond us signing one contract and finishing that contract. And that that's with the city. Um, that's where we started. Was with the city. Uh, it's with our home builders. Um, it's with you know other land partners who are going to be developing portions of the property. Um, it's even with the residents who are going to move in. I'm you know, the standard in our market is like a resident probably never actually meets the developer. The developer's making all the decisions about how the community is going to be. And then they're telling the home builders what they can build. And then the prospective buyer comes in and meets the home builder. Maybe they meet like a welcome center person or a lifestyle person, but they never actually meet the person making the decisions. And so for us, we were like, hey, if we're going to design a neighborhood for other people, uh, shouldn't we get some feedback from them, from the people who are thinking about living in this community? So we've actually been trying to interact with them as much as we can. And that, that takes effort. Relationships take effort. And you have to be willing to put in the time for it. Um, but going out into the public and, um, you know, hosting, like, you know, going to the fairs and festivals in, in Richmond, the city that's right next to us, uh, and supporting them, you know, sponsoring those events, being out there with a tent, talking to people and getting feedback has been really valuable for us. And we we treat it the same way with the actual city government as well, too, of like, we had eight or 10 meetings with them before we were actually like, this is what we are asking for from you. And we're asking you to approve this. We put the time in, had the conversations. And through the course of this process for you, being that it's your first, you know, development, you know, you must've had some preconceived perceptions or ideas of what this process was going to look like. Obviously you sat in, you know, early on, on a bunch of developer meetings and, and, um, has there been anything uh, along the way that has totally shifted your thinking or maybe has presented some opportunities that you didn't think were necessarily opportunities at the time, but now are opportunities? Hmm. That is a tough one. Um, or challenges. It could yeah. even be, you know, just something might've been a, a challenge that you didn't think was going to be a challenge. Yeah, I think. I'll, I'll speak to one that everyone said was a challenge that we were like, oh, that won't, we'll be able to figure that out. That seems cut and dry. And that's, that's the civil engineering side of things. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work and you have a lot of different people who get to choose whether or not your work is approved when we're talking about street design. So we have, you know, our streets have to go through the city of Richmond and through the county and through the drainage district to just to get approved. Um, and then beyond that, they have to be inspected and they, you know, we have to prove that they're of really high quality and all those things. So 
I think there were some of those things that I thought, oh, that won't be that bad that have been as bad as people have said they would be and have been as challenging. Um, bad's not a great word, but have been as challenging as people said. I think where I've been surprised is that, um, like, I get it's a lot of work. And so lots of times when a consultant is dealing with the city on your behalf as your agent, so let's say an architect, you know, takes a design to the building and is look, uh, to the city is looking for a permit. Um, often there will be a small, like, bump, road bump in that process and consultants don't have the same um, needs that a developer does. They don't understand our situation. Uh, they don't know the, the burn rate on our interest on a <laughs> monthly basis or how like every day is a lot of money right now. Yeah. Um, you know, we're in that compressed period right now. Where it's like every single day that we delay lot delivery is costing us a lot of money and, and they don't understand that. And, and we shouldn't expect them to, uh, that's not their work. Um, and so I think that, one thing that we're learning is how to guide our consultants to not take no for an answer and that where they run into something that might be a bump to say, maybe this doesn't have to be a bump and let me get with the developers and let's go through this because we've had three or four unsurmountable issues that uh, one phone call to a County commissioner has resolved. Um, and you know, the reality is that these city organizations, these are people trying to do their job, trying to do good work, trying to protect you know, what they think is the right thing for these areas, but sometimes they overreach a little bit and you have to be ready to find the lever to pull to get them to back down from their overreach. And even in doing that, you have to do that in relationship so that you get to continue to work nicely with these people um, afterwards. And I think that's where a lot of developers go wrong is running roughshod over city staff, uh, being really rough with them, not understanding what it's like to be a city staff member, and then destroying that relationship. And now everything's going to be difficult for you. How are potential residents hearing about Indigo or finding the community? Is it been word of mouth? Is it, um, you know, what's that process like? Or how has it been that, you know, people are, you know, you know, finding your community? It's, it's, I think it's been the scattershot approach of like everything. Um, but a few things have been really successful. So um, I know our like our marketing team says we have more people on our interest list right now than they've ever seen in any of their other communities. That's and a, a lot problem. of those, yeah, a lot of those are established developers doing much larger communities and in larger, even in larger cities sometimes. So um, we know there's a little bit of something there. So then it's like, why? Why are people signing up? How are they even hearing about us to sign up on the email list? And I think our PR has really been a big part of that. Again, our PR firm says we're so used to like pitching a hundred different ideas to 50 different publications and getting one or two to land. Uh, and they said, it's been shocking that with Indigo, like everybody wants to talk about this and almost everything they propose, every pitch they make is picked up at some point. And I think that that's related to a couple of things. One, uh, what Indigo is attempting to do in the suburbs of Houston is a groundswell movement across the entire United States right now. Walkability, uh, urban in the suburbs, density, missing middle housing, those things are all happening nationwide. Uh, and Houston may be in the middle, kind of some cities obviously have been into that a lot longer, others still lag well behind Houston. Um, but I think part of it was that. So we were just at the right moment where the media was ready to talk about this. But the other part of it is like, we are trying to be very thoughtful about the human experience at the end of this community. And I think most of the the media writers who are writing about master plan communities, it's like, it's business writing. 
Right. It's like there was this piece of land sold by this person to this person. This person was the broker. They're going to have they're approved for, you know, 1400 homes and they're going to deliver their lots with these three builders at this date. And that's not the story we're telling to the, in the PR pitches. The stories we're telling are um, older people have to move out of their community into a community specific for them to get the smaller home they need, to get the walkability they need, to have the um, you know, pharmacy around the corner for their, their medical needs. And so we don't have to design our neighborhoods in a way that forces that same thing for kids, right? So when you start talking about those narratives and how what you're doing is leading to a higher quality of life for people, not, we have 10 lakes and a thousand miles of trails. Um, but the things that are actually going to really impact people's lives, the media, I think is happy to, to pick up on those things. And that's benefited us a lot. Where do you draw inspiration or creativity from? I mean, clearly this concept is very new, the agri-hood and what you're mm -hmm. developing. Um, where do you find, you know, design ideas or, or inspiration or just, you know, in a creative sense? Yeah. It's easy to look to parts of Europe. Um, I think especially parts of Italy where the small farm culture surrounding the outskirts of a town was the way every small town was. Um, and those market days, you know, three or four days a week where farmers brought the produce in and sold it. Um, there's, there's a lot of influence there. Of course, I don't get to go to Europe, every, you know, three times a year. Uh, so we have to find other, um, other places to look. Looking at, I would say for the, the walkability and urbanism stuff, we love traveling to small towns uh, and we've started actually doing that. Um, we're doing it every other month now and we're recording it and we're starting to put out a little bit of a series on that. And so we did Brenham, Texas, which was shockingly awesome. It is. Um, yeah. I highly recommend anybody go there. I never knew that was there and I've driven through Brenham. I've driven around Brenham, you know, hundreds of times. It's a great um, place. Right. Yeah. And then we did Broadway street in downtown LA was the next one. And again, like some really awesome urbanism, a little strip of it in downtown LA. And so um, we go to those places and get inspiration. Um, I, I, there's also um, Andres Duani at DPZ put out a book with a few other partners, I think called Agrarian Urbanism, um, maybe like seven or eight years ago now. And so like that was a really great book to just see the way that land planners are looking at how to bring agriculture in to a city and like honoring the historic patterns of how that would have worked and not just like plopping an urban farm down in the middle of downtown. Um, but thinking about what do you want to be next to the farm? What do you want to not be next to the farm? Um, you know, a farm is not great for walkability because it tends to be this big open hole in the urban fabric. And so how do you find the right place for those? And I think that's that was another place that we got some good um, inspiration. How does this concept evolve over time? You know, what is a, a community in agrihood look like, you know, 20 years in the future or 50 years in the future, what, what is the long-term, you know, projection of, of how this eventually evolves? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, we, we've built a model that we think works right now. That's very safe. It's secure for the developer. Um, and it also works for the residents of the community, at least, you know, medium term, we're coming up on nine years in at our first agrihood. Um, so we know that like medium term, it works. But when you start talking about um, the structures in those communities reaching their functional age and starting to look at what happens to the redevelopment pattern, you know, I don't know when we hit 50, 70 years, um, what's that going to mean? I don't know. How do we see 
like I think one of the big questions is how much agriculture you're pulling into these communities. So far, it's very much like an educational amount of agriculture. It's not serving more than 2% of the community their vegetables. There's a few <clears throat> communities that are pushing a little further in that regard. Willowsford's doing it on the protein side with the um, the cattle that they have in the conservancy out there. Um, I think uh, Arden in West Palm Beach has some grand ideas for how much they're going to serve, and we'll see how how that goes and if they get there with with as many vegetables as they are hoping to grow for people. But I think that's the evolution: is like, do we push further into the actual production? And for your company, Maristeam Communities, um, five, 10 years, you know, what is your, your vision or goal for your company? Do you plan on completing Indigo and then, you know, doing another AgriHood um, or several more? What, um, what do you see for your, your company itself? Well, you are asking all the questions we, we ask ourselves, so you're, you're nailing it. Um, I know one thing we talk about at Maristem is we don't want to be typecast as master plan community developers only. For the most part, most companies that get into master plan community development, that's all they do. <clears throat> they don't do a lot of other stuff. There's a few like Howard Hughes Corporation does, um, you know, they have a wide portfolio of things. There's a few people that do it, but those are massive companies. And I don't know that we ever want to be larger than 20 employees. And so uh, as we grow, I think what we see is a mixture, like probably always having a master plan community in the works in some mm -hmm. phase, maybe it's in planning, maybe it's the the tail end of home sales and we're wrapping things up, um, but then also doing a lot of other projects alongside it, adaptive reuse. Um, I love in Houston, we have a group called Concept Neighborhood that has took one neighborhood and basically done urban planning independent from the city staff and then said, here's what we think this neighborhood should be. Um, and they quietly had bought 17 acres of that neighborhood over the time. And then they've done a lot of work with residents in that neighborhood to find out what they want as well. Um, and so they're now asking the city to, to uh, enact road diets, add bike lanes, um, reduce parking requirements when they're within a certain distance of a bus stop. And they're getting a lot of those things through because they're making a big investment. And so the city's willing to make a big investment there too. And I think it makes for a better redevelopment pattern in places that need some redevelopment instead of just steamrolling and building 60 foot, you know, 60 story towers. Um, this seems like a much more human sort of redevelopment. And so I think we'll probably do some work like that as well. So redevelopment and just, you know, ground up development from, you know, just raw yeah, land. Greenfield. Oh, yeah. Greenfield development. If you could go back in time, whether, you know, younger, younger Scott, or even the start of this project Indigo, uh, and you could, you know, give yourself some advice, what are one or two things that you would say, hey, you know, do this, Scott, you know, you'll be much better off, you know, any anything that you could think of that uh, you tell yourself? Um, you know, we've we've just hired our first employee uh, a couple of months ago um, at Maristem. And so I think one of the things would be start building that team faster. Um, because once Clayton and I have reached capacity, like we now don't have the time to spend to build the team. And so it's, uh, I think realizing that we need to be building our team ahead of the need for that bandwidth, um, or even those skill sets in some ways. And so that's one thing we're looking at now is how do we get a little more aggressive at, at, at expanding our staff and and then what is that do we need someone who's got a finance background do we need construction do we want to have a civil engineer on our team you know are we 
Are we looking for a sociologist who's going to help us really, you know, when we do development work, really focus on that human scale? Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing. The other thing is um, just be prepared for every single thing to take longer than it's supposed to take. Uh, and that means financially planning for that as well, that your best case scenario is not going to be very close to the average realistic scenario. Um, and I'm an optimist at heart. So I always want to believe that and you know, I can push and we can get to that almost perfect scenario. Um, but I think just being realistic that you need to prepare for significant potholes along the journey. Yeah, that's true. Um, any books, podcasts, any recommendations that you, you know, want to let the, let the audience know about? There's, uh, I mean, there is so much awesome content out in the world right now. I think your show here is, you know, testament to that as well, that there's just a ton of stuff out there. Um, you know, I will say that, um, doing, if you are a little more academic in mind, or you can handle the a little bit drier of subjects, uh, the UCLA Lewis Center for Public Policy has a housing podcast now that's run by Shane Phillips and a few other folks there. Um, Shane's the author of Affordable City. They're tackling some really, really good topics uh, there, and he has really great um, guests uh, on that show. Uh, in Starting in January, I'm going to be launching a book club um, where we're going to do a book every quarter. And so I've been posting book reviews on LinkedIn for awesome. three years now, and it's been the most engaging thing that I've done. And I've had a few people say, well, when are we doing a book club? So we're going to kick that off officially in January. We're in the process of selecting our first book right now. But the goal with that will also be to tie in the authors, have them come and speak, do a LinkedIn live event, you know, take questions, um, make it really interactive. So uh, you can watch my LinkedIn for that. Uh, That's a we'll great idea. January. Scott, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Any last thoughts? You know, uh, it can be really difficult work being a developer. Um, I, and But I would say that I never question whether it's worth it or not. Uh, that never even comes into mind. So even on the worst days of being a developer, uh, I know that the work we're doing is so impactful. And I hope that other developers, when they get those down days too, are able to remind themselves that they are basically deciding the way that people are going to live or work or learn or play or whatever. Uh, and that's something that we should hold really sacred that's really important. And I think also feel honored that the world trusts us to do that work. Scott, it was awesome having you on the show. Thank you so much. I think that's a great way to end it. Really appreciate you having uh, the time to spend with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.